I'm Jonathan Woodward. This is On the Brink, stories of change and decision. A while back, there was a rash of movies about people switching bodies. Maybe you remember. It started with the movie Big with Tom Hanks. He was an 11-year-old in a 33-year-old's body. And then Kirk Cameron and Dudley Moore make a film like Father Like Son. The father and the son, they switch bodies. Then Judge Reinhold and Fred Savage, they make Vice Versa. Steve Martin, Lily Tomlin make All of Me. But the godparent of all of these body swap films is Freaky Friday. It's such a great story concept. They made Freaky Friday three times with Jodie Foster in 76, Shelley Long in 95, and then Lindsay Lohan and Jamie Lee Curtis in 2003. In fact, it seems like we're pretty much due for a new one any day now. At the heart of this storyline is the allure of looking back at those moments of being on the brink of everything as an adult to when you were a kid, when you reflect and think to yourself, if only I had done this, or if only I had said that, if I just believed in myself more, if I had just had more confidence, then we think our life could be an incredible fairy tale. It could be a storybook. But sometimes the storybook plays out in real life. My next guest is in the enviable position of being able to look back and know that he went through this remarkable moment when things came together in a spectacular way right after they had totally fallen apart. Matthew Broderick is well known for his film work and films like Ferris Bueller's Day Off, but he's also been a stalwart of the New York stage. Broderick had a fairly storybook beginning. In short order, at the beginning of his career, he zoomed into originating roles in Harvey Firestein's Torch Song trilogy and then Brighton Beach Memoirs, for which he received a Tony Award. It was his first Broadway role. I sat down with him in studio in Manhattan, and I had one question that I wanted to start with. Do you remember a moment when you could look at it and say, I want to do that? Well, my father was an actor, so my first feelings about that came in uh, more regional theaters where my father would work, and I, th- and I started to think I liked that idea. Did you get a sense of that kind of continuity and that history when you were growing up? Yes, definitely. I, my, I didn't go to a lot of Broadway shows. People asked me, you know, what was the first Broadway show you saw? And I, I think it might have been Dancing. <laughs> and growing up in New York, just walking past these old Broadway theaters... I guess secretly I probably was desperately wanted to be inside them but never thought it was possible. With your father as an actor, Mm -hmm. did that lead to some sort of normalization of the theater or did it have some level of inclusion that you noticed? In some ways because I had spent time backstage so I kind of knew the atmosphere of, of theater. So it normalized it in some ways. However, the first time you're on stage yourself, your father is not with you, and uh, it's totally bizarre and terrifying. But your father was with you on stage. Oh, that's true. The first professional job I had was at uh, HB Studio with my father. He played my father. And I remember he said to me, you know, now I'm playing opposite you, so uh, I'm not your coach or anything. I'm not going to... Don't ask me stuff, basically. (laughs) He felt that actors shouldn't always know what the other actor is doing. So if you discuss things too much, you can't surprise somebody. And there's spontaneity is is lost, which I I still think is basically true. Can you describe that time when you shift from a like a high school production and then you're into, you know, something new, something a little bit more polished Yes. It's not going to be everybody's sisters and cousins and everybody that you know from the team. Yeah. After high school, I auditioned for 
anything I could. I got a, a, an agent right after high school, very luckily, and they sent me out everywhere. There's a woman named Sasha Silverstein, and um, I would get callbacks, so they kept doing it, I guess, but I didn't get any parts, but then suddenly I got cast as the lead in a movie that uh, Marty Ritt was directing, starring Sally Field, and I was playing her love interest, basically, as it was a September, May romance, and uh, they both just won Academy Awards. It was a huge thing. I had never worked professionally, and suddenly I was the lead in a movie. And, uh, you know, as I laid in bed writing my Oscar acceptance speech, <laughs> um, about two weeks into shooting, the director was not feeling, he was sickly, and Sally Field did not seem to be liking it. And and anyway, the movie was uh, canceled two weeks into shooting. So that was actually my uh, first foray into serious show business. So it couldn't have been more disastrous in a, in a way. What's that like, to have that sort of well, it was um, expectation and then... Yeah, it, it was kind of horrible, truthfully. I, I mean... I felt incredibly lucky to have had that, but I went from having lunch with Marty Ritt and Sally Field and a DP to auditioning again for literally a radio commercial for Bubble Yum and not getting it. So I went from what I thought was a start of a career to definitely square one. I couldn't, and it even felt worse. I would audition and I was sort of the guy from the thing that had been thrown out. So I was uh, suddenly, I felt, had a slight disadvantage. Finally, I read for a play called Torch Song Trilogy, and uh, I got that part. I read with Harvey, and when I was leaving, the producer came out and said, we want to hire you, which is rare. And it became a sort of sensation, you know, the play. I'm not, I'm not talking about myself. And... um. During preview, my father got cancer, and we found out that he was basically dying between previews and opening of that play. So every, my year of, now I've made it, you know, or I think maybe I've made it, or, or anyway, I'm getting some work, mm. is very colored, to be honest with you, by my personal life. So it was always uh, kind of a schizophrenic thing, but... Uh, Torch Song became this big success. And I had been auditioning for um, Brighton Beach Memoirs at the time, a Neil Simon play. Concurrently? Yes. Wow. I, I believe it was concurrent. And suddenly the fact that I was in this off-Broadway hit play, I got taken more serious. I think that helped. And uh, I auditioned maybe four times, like Neil Simon. I read for Neil Simon. I kept, kept auditioning this, these little scenes for Brighton Beach and uh, I finally got to read the whole play because they were like, now you're going to come read at a theater. So I knew that I was getting s somewhat close. Mm. They told me, come to the office and you can read the play. We, they wouldn't send it to me. I'm a very slow reader. I still am. <laughs> so they all kind of were leaving. And I was still reading this um, play. And uh, a cleaning lady, you know, I remember <laughs> just being kind of alone in the lobby of this uh, these offices with this gem, this absolute piece of gold I mean I, the part was absolutely hilarious and I loved it and I thought I'll never get that part but this is the greatest part I've ever I was thrilled uh, but still I thought you know the chances are a billion whatever and uh, 
But I read a couple more times, I think, and I read it in a theater, I think, where Ain't Misbehavin' was the set behind me. And uh, Neil Simon was out there, and I heard him laugh a couple of times. And I was like, man, I was like... That's it. Yeah, I was like, he's laughing at his own material. (laughs) (laughs) But also, maybe at me or I didn't ruin it. So anyway, I read for him either twice or once, I don't remember, but then I read for him and Herbert Ross, who was directing it. And uh, I come in in the morning and I read a monologue from the beginning. And they say, stay around for a little while. And I see other young men waiting and going out and I don't know. And then I think I read again and they said, can you come later and uh, read with Jelko Ivanik, who's playing the brother? And we want to see if you guys seem like brothers. That sounds so, terrifying. Yeah, so I said, yeah, sure. And uh, and they said, meanwhile, can you come read for this film script? And I was like, well, uh. And they said, can you come out in the audience and read? The director said to me, and I said, I, I, can't, I have to go. I lied. Oh. I said, I can come back later, but I, I have an appointment. Because I, what I wanted and what worked was I wanted to cheat and look at the script a little bit. Mm. So I said, I'll come back and, and I can be back in an hour and a half. Can I just take those sides with me for the movie? And he, he said, okay. So I read this time pretty quickly <laughs> in a diner trying to figure it out. I never didn't really help me. But I came back and I sat next to Herbert Ross, who was directing Brighton Beach, and read through every scene in this movie playing Marsha Mason's son. Oh. And he said, okay, thank you. And then I went back up and I read again with Jelko Ivanik for uh, Brighton Beach. The two of us read. And they said, okay, thank you. And I walked off the stage and um, Marilyn Zatmary was there, the casting director. And she said, well, you had a good day. And I said, uh, what, what happened? Did I get that movie? Because I had a feeling that maybe I had and I said, did I get the movie? And she said, no, you got both. That's remarkable. Yeah. I, I, I mean, it's very rare. And uh, I'm, I'm, I hope that doesn't sound like bragging. It just it just, it did happen to me. And it was uh, quite overwhelming. I mean, I was extremely awed by the fact that I was on a stage auditioning. Like, even to be, to go through the stage door was rare for me to, you know, to feel what it was like on the stage of Ain't Misbehavin', which I had seen and loved, <laughs> was already pretty exciting. So then when they say, you're coming in and going to be part of this club, I, I sort of didn't know what to think. And I called my father from a payphone in the village to tell him. And uh, I told him, I, I think I got two parts. And um, he went crazy. He was so happy. So he sort of expressed the... Uh, the joy that I was still not uh, ready to uh, let not out. quite connected to yet. No. Um, also, you know, you also when you these transitions in your life, you, you also immediately think, "All right, well now this has to come out." Well, you know, it's not like you're done. No, you can't it's, suck now. You no, have to yeah, go. <laughs> exactly. It's like here's your here's your uniform. Go out there and. Uh, See if you can get a hit. Well, that's the thing they always they always talk to about actors. This big break mythology, right? Yeah. This, this idea that this is your moment and uh, seize it, right. and here you are. But you'd actually been 
down that path a couple of I times. I had been down that path very much so and horribly failed. So um, I don't mean I failed necessarily, but I felt like I did, and in a way I did. So I knew already that maybe, which is a good thing, that these it doesn't always mean you're done. And uh, my father always told me, well, he told me, I guess he was trying to comfort me when that movie fell apart. He said, uh, you shouldn't really plan on being in a movie until it's actually edited and comes out in a theater. Like, you really don't know when you get a part what's going to happen. Yeah. There's this moment then, eventually. Mm-hmm. Rehearsals, um, you'll have tech. Yes. You'll put in, and then there's got to be previews. Yep. But there's only one opening night. Yep. Yeah, it's uh, it's quite a... Um, it's it's very hard to describe the adrenaline of uh, not just opening night, but the first audience, you know, the first paid audience, the first preview. Waiting backstage after rehearsing a play for five weeks or whatever and hearing the people in the seats for the first time and music starting or lights dimming or a curtain is... Uh, a uh, mind-blowing uh, moment, uh, still, and it didn't go with it didn't go without bumps, you know. Um, Gene replaced an actor or two, and uh, like I said, the director quit. And then the nervousness that comes close to opening, and this I remember mostly in New York. I think as previews were ending. There started to be a vibe that I was doing something wrong. I, it's just nervousness, but the actor can easily become the uh, focus of that, you know, or anybody. It could be anybody, but sometimes that spotlight hits you for a little while. And Gene Sachs took me out to dinner, I remember, during like the last week of previews, I think, to some fancy restaurant. And he said, he basically said, Yeah, I'm supposed to talk to you or something. And, but then he said, he said, I told him I don't really want to, I don't really want to talk about the play. All I want to do is have a nice dinner with you, to tell you the truth. And uh, I think what he meant by that was relax and be yourself and uh, I trust you. But it was a very sweet thing of uh, Gene to... Uh, take me to that dinner because in a way he was saying you're a grown up you know you belong at the table I don't want to overdo it but I remember that dinner very um, I'm grateful about it because I think it was his instincts his instinct was to just make me feel part of the show that it wasn't there wasn't an otherness yeah that it wasn't you better do all right or we're all gonna Mm die, which was a little bit starting to be the feeling at the theater. And then you opened and won a Tony. Uh, yeah. That one didn't happen in the same night. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was a storybook thing. I got a Tony Award, and it was the same year as Torch Song, so I was in the audience with Harvey Firestein and all his cast, and we were all winning things. And uh, I remember I told my mom I, years later, I said, you know, I, at first I thought, you do plays or movies or whatever, 
And then at the end of the year, in the spring, you go collect awards. I just thought that was part of the uh, <laughs> the system, you know? Kind of like Easter. Right. I thought it just what happens. But it turned out, I know now, 35 years later, that was about it, or maybe one or two other times. But So the the sun comes out, in a way, and yes. it really shines. And that, that takes you concurrently, of course, in, into Hollywood and another sort of moment of being on the brink of, yeah. of something new and something... Something beyond that, but the stage has stayed critical for you all these years. Yeah, You've never left the stage. You've always stayed tied into that. Mm-hmm. What do you think keeps you there? I don't know. I I always wanted to do both. I I love films too, but I I do uh, what I thought when I was starting out. Also, was I should keep stage going. I got very. I did a lot of movies for a while, and I thought. I want to keep a toe in the in the theater too, not only because I love it, but I thought if if this doesn't work out, I want to I want two paths, so that I'll have some I'll have a chance of uh, slipping easily into the other if one if one goes wrong. That was my theory. I didn't realize when one of them goes wrong, they it all goes wrong in a oh, way. You know, the the cards fall. Yeah, and well, if you have a a failure, the theater doesn't say, oh, that doesn't matter. Or, Mm. They do affect each other a little bit, although not entirely. And and I love the theater. I don't know why. I I, I find it, um, you know, give an actor a job and he complains. Basically, they say so. You can complain about theater. People, the endless bitching about three hours a a night, is astounding. <laughs> but um, and I'm guilty of it. But uh, it's a great job. Do you still get that feeling? Yeah. I mean, I still get nervous. I rarely get the feeling a a Brighton Beach or a Torch song turns out to be quite rare. Hmm. You know, so I've now had much, a lot of experience with uh, a different feeling, which is, oh, man, I'm, I'm not quite, this isn't quite working. How do we fix this? So I've I've had all sorts of a whole range of uh, things, but the feeling when a even a scene in a play that whatever it, when when something on stage is going well, and you know you're loving your partner and the audience is is tuned into it, it's an amazing feeling that I don't know where else I would get that, and I still love that and I still hope for that feeling. I'm always curious about curtain calls. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you look at actors and curtain calls and, and you feel like, you know, you can enjoy what's happening to them. Yeah. And sometimes you look at yeah. them and think, I want to throw up with you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know. Do you have a, a personal relationship there, like that first night? I have done plays where I feel absolutely miserable and I have to come out and bow. So I sympathize with the uh, with an angry curtain call <laughs> whatever. I've, I've done probably been guilty of them. But I generally think it is a moment to say thank you. So, I mean, to the audience. I know they're clapping for us, but I think it's our chance to say thanks for sitting here for three hours. So the I'm so tired, I've given so much (laughs) curtain call is something I would be very embarrassed by. So I like to grin artificially and bow. And uh, I mean, if I'm at all happy which I usually am, I will let that show. And I think it's your time to say it's just me and this was just a trick and uh, thank you for, for playing along. 
you know. I don't think mm. I try not to make it too serious. But, but I see people who say they look like they've just been, you know, lined up in against the hospital. A wall. <laughs> now, now they've. <laughs> Maybe I'm not a good enough actor. I usually feel once it's done, like I just want to go get a drink somewhere, and you know, it's time to be myself again. Mm -hmm. You know, I've been I've been speaking to a lot of uh, actors that are right. They're right on that way, and they've got all of that confidence and certainty. Yeah. Do you stay in touch with that confidence and certainty? Does it ever leave? Is it ever challenged? It is often challenged. Often. I guess when you're starting out, you don't have uh, room to get too worried. You just have to think this is going to work because it's so rare that it works. And, um, you know, I remember that period of my life when I was just auditioning and auditioning. And you have to uh, find a way to keep positive about it, I guess. But I remember coming home and saying, oh, God, I could have done that better and whatever. And I'm still like that. That's my nature. And um, I worry constantly. I'm in the rehearsal right now for a play and I'm, you know, petrified. But I, I, but I have to tell myself, I guess that's normal, you know, because they, they often don't go perfectly uh, smoothly. And I guess if you were just blandly, you know, satisfied, that wouldn't be so good either. Any career, a career in show business and or whether you're whatever level you're at is uh, you are going to be hurt. You know, you're going to have uh, your ego knocked at and uh, sometimes in very personal ways, you know, because it's really you. I mean, your stupid face up there. So when somebody doesn't like it, it can rattle you. You have to develop some sort of uh, skin. I'm just, I'm working on that. <laughs> I think by the time I retire, I will. Uh... Matthew, thank you so much for coming to talk to us today. Thank you very much. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. I'm Jonathan Woodward. This has been a presentation of On the Brink, Stories of Change and Decisions. Thanks for listening.